Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 15, Leviticus chapter 11, continued. Well, we began Leviticus chapter 11 last time. And uh, we're going to continue it this week. And, and the study of Leviticus chapter 11 centers around the subjects of clean versus unclean and holy versus common. Now, it's interesting to me that only in Judaism are these words used regularly. And where the common religious person has at least some education in the meaning of their terms. Now, if you use these same words around modern-day believers, you're going to get some blank stares. And uh, some will wonder out loud whether those terms, other than perhaps holy, are even in the Bible or apply to us in our times. But this subject is central to the Judeo-Christian faith, and the lack of understanding equally central to, unfortunately, the weakness of the church in this age. Now, let's see if we can't delve a little further into that matter today and perhaps take a step towards recovering these critical God principles. Now, the final case we discussed in our last meeting had to do with a dead animal like as a, like, such as a common house mouse right, coming into contact with some object like a, like a bowl or a pot. And, and thus transmitting the uncleanness of death onto that object. So the question becomes, now that something has become polluted with an unclean dead thing, what's to be done with that object? Right. And the next few verses in chapter 11 gives us that answer. So let's reread the last half of Leviticus chapter 11 to get our bearings this week. Turn to Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to read from 29 to the end. The following are unclean for you among all the small creatures that swarm on the ground, the weasel, the mouse, the various kinds of lizards, the gecko, the land crocodile, the skink, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. They're unclean crawling creatures. Whoever touches them when they're dead will become unclean until evening. Anything on which one of them falls when dead will become unclean. Wooden utensil, article of clothing, leather, sacking, any utensil used for work. Okay? It must be put in water and it will be unclean until evening, then it will be clean. If one of them falls into a clay pot, whatever it Whatever is in it will become unclean, and you're to break that pot. Any food permitted to be eaten that water from uh, such a vessel gets on will become unclean, and any permitted liquid in such a vessel will become unclean. Everything on which any carcass part of theirs falls will become unclean, whether it's an oven or a stove. It is to be broken in pieces. They are unclean and will be unclean for you. Although a spring or cistern for collecting water does remain clean. But anyone who touches one of their carcasses will become unclean. If any carcass part of theirs falls onto any kind of seed that's to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and a carcass part of theirs falls onto it, it is unclean for you. If an animal of a kind that you are permitted to eat dies, Whomever touches its carcass will be unclean until evening. A person who eats meat from its carcass or carries its carcass is to wash his clothes. He will be unclean until evening. Any creature that swarms on the ground is a detestable thing. It's not to be eaten. Okay? Whatever moves on its stomach, goes on all fours, or has many legs, all creatures that swarm on the ground, you're not to eat them because they're a detestable thing. You're not to make yourselves detestable with any of these swarming, crawling creatures. Do not make for yourselves, do not make yourselves unclean with them. Do not defile yourselves with them. For I am Adonai, your God. 
Therefore, consecrate yourselves. Be holy, for I am holy. Do not defile yourselves with any kind of swarming creature that moves along the ground, for I am Adonai, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you are to be holy, because I am holy. Such, then, is the law concerning animals, flying creatures, all living creatures that move about in the water, all creatures that swarm on the ground. Its purpose is to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Now, starting at verse 32, most Bible translators have the last half of that verse stating something to the effect of any article, any utensil, anything made of wood, leather, any article of clothing, something like that. But that's not really correct. Okay? In the original Hebrew, what is typically translated as article or utensil is instead the word vessel. Right? In, Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word keli, K-E-L-I, keli, right? specifically refers to a container, something that holds something else. Right? Like a bowl, like a, a, a water pitcher, maybe it's made out of wood. It's, or it could be in reference to a skin, but it means like a wine skin. It's made for holding something. Okay? And, and the idea is to understand that the vessel is, is made out of something porous. And therefore, it's very likely to absorb some of what it's been filled with. Okay? And the solution for cleansing such a vessel is that it can be dipped in water. That is, it can be washed with water. Right? And after the ritual washing um, that lasts until sunset, the end of the current day and beginning, the vessel was then considered to be ritually clean once again. However, as we're told in verse 33, if a dead animal falls into an earthenware vessel, pottery, it has to be destroyed and never used again. The same goes for an earthenware oven or stove that could become defiled. In those days, a stove could be something as simple as an upside-down pot, upside-down bowl, all right, just, just set over hot rocks and then set something underneath, something to retain the heat. All right, that, that was an oven most of the time. Okay. Now, why it had to be broken and no longer used again isn't exactly stated. Scholars aren't sure. And this is partly because the art of glazing and firing of clay pots was a known technology in the land of Canaan at this time. And when glazed, the problem with porosity and absorption is pretty well solved. But there doesn't seem to be any mention of it in this verse that one can distinguish between a fired vessel and an unfired one. Well, the elaborateness of the Judaism purity regulations that developed over the centuries is staggering. Um, an entire tractate in the Mishnah called Kilim is devoted to this subject. And, and one of the keys to the minds of those great sages was whether that dead creature fell onto or into that vessel. Most of the time, a creature falling just onto the vessel meant that the vessel could be washed. But when it fell into the vessel, most of the time the vessel and its contents had to be destroyed. And therefore, a lid on the vessel was a pretty good defense right, against the most serious and expensive incidents of contact with a dead creature. And as one might be expected, as one might expect, not only the vessel, but also everything that was in it when the dead creature fell into it was rendered unclean. However, it came with this caveat that moisture had to be present in the vessel. That is, if there was dry grain inside the vessel, then all that needed was for the dead animal to be removed, cleanse the vessel, and the dry grain would be considered acceptable. However, if the grain had some moisture in it, might be acceptable for them, I don't know about us, right? 
But if the grain had some moisture in it, had some water, for instance, maybe it was dough, went so far as to be dough, all right, that was left to rise, then it had to be disposed of. Now, it seems that the key to transmitting the pollution was water, or if this was a water pot or a wine vat, then all the liquid in it was now defiled and it had to be destroyed. Now, verse 36 tells us something interesting. That if a dead animal falls into a water well, or a cistern, or a water spring, there is no transmission of pollution to that well, cistern, or spring. Okay. However, the unfortunate person assigned to dig that thing out of there does become unclean. Right. Now, here's the principle about water. When it's attached to the earth, okay, when water is attached to the earth, like in a cistern or a lake or a stream or a mikvah, okay, the water cannot be made unclean. There's nothing you can do to make that water unclean. On the other hand, water that has been put into a portable vessel like a pot all right, or a bucket can be made unclean because it's not attached to the earth. It's a, it's a movable thing. Okay? This lends itself to explaining why it is that a ritually unclean person or thing can be made clean by being immersed into water provided that water is attached to the earth. All right? Water attached to the earth, therefore, cannot attract, uh, cannot um, uh, contract that uncleanness from that unclean thing. All, that, all it can do is lend its purity to what is unclean. Okay? Now, keep that in mind. Because if you do, it's going to help you understand many things about the Hebrews' ritual processes and even some of the reasons Yeshua did what he did. Okay. Now, verse 38 tells us that dry seed, for planting crops, is not contaminated if a dead animal falls into it. However, if it's been dampened somehow, then the seed is unclean and can't be used. Then things switch a little bit in verse 39 because now we're going to deal with clean animals. We've been dealing with unclean animals. Now we're going to deal with clean animals. And the idea is that death makes a normally clean thing unclean. Okay? So, for instance, if a goat, a clean animal, dies for some reason, the person who touches its carcass becomes unclean until sundown. In other words, until the end of the day. Someone who eats this formerly clean but now dead animal also becomes unclean and in addition must wash his garments in water. And the same goes for someone who simply carries away the carcass of the dead animal. Of course, the cause of the animal's death is rather key. If the animal was slaughtered for sacrifice or just for a meal, that's fine. No uncleanness exists. It's, it's when the animal dies from disease, right, or it's killed by a predator, or maybe it dies by accident, that it contracts and transmits uncleanness. Then verses 41 through 44 again address this concept of shikates. S-H-E-K-E-T-S. Shikates. Which means abomination. Okay. And the, the instruction against eating any living creature that swarms in Hebrew, sharats, S-H-A-R-A-T-S, is repeated. And obviously this is a very serious matter that it would be repeated with, within just a few verses. Snakes, frogs, lizards, rats, mice, alligators, crocodiles, anything that slithers on its belly, crawls on all fours, darts around. All this is forbidden. Okay, Why? 
Because for Jehovah's own good reasons, these things are detestable to him. Okay? And the one who disobeys and does eat these things becomes detestable, so to speak, to God, at least temporarily. Not something any Hebrew, nor certainly any of us, would ever want to be labeled as. And verse 45 reminds us just why God has set up this stringent set of rules for Israel. Because since he is holy, his people must also be holy. Only something or someone holy can be in the presence of his absolute and preeminent holiness. See, this goes back to the Genesis concept that God made mankind in his image. God is holy, so man is to be holy. As intelligent and wonderful is a dog or a chimp or a dolphin, there appears to be no evidence, either scripturally or scientifically, to show that any living creature except for a human has the ability to comprehend God or to comprehend a spiritual world. This is unique to mankind above all other living creatures. All of, you, all of whom, by the way, Jehovah places great value. Okay. And this is one reason why men are permitted by God to kill and eat other living creatures, but these same living creatures are not permitted by God to kill and eat men. Okay. The Bible sentences any animal that's killed a human being for any reason to death. Now, this chapter ends with a postscript, which is rather typical for that region in those times. And just as the chapter began by telling Israel what it was that was going to be discussed, so now it concludes by reiterating the purpose of the just spoken laws and commands. And it is that the Israelites might distinguish between the clean and the forbidden foods, or as we learned in Hebrew, between the Tameh and the Tahor. It also involves a biblical concept that has largely been in the background um, since the book of Genesis. This concept of God dividing, electing, and separating. Okay? Those who were here for Genesis might remember that principle, but it's been quite a while. So to sum it up, in the beginning, God went through a whole series of actions of dividing, electing, and separating. He divided dry land from the waters and separated them. He divided light from darkness in the sense of evil from good and separated them. He divided daytime from nighttime and separated them. He divided the water vapor in the air from the condensed water that formed the seas and he separated them. He set up the minor lights in the heavens like stars to designate and divide seasons. He created man and divided him and separated him away from all other living creatures just as eventually... He would divide, elect, and separate Israel away from all other nations on earth. So this same process is at play in dividing, electing, and separating these foods that man may eat versus foods that he may not. In fact, although the typical translation for verse 47 says something to the effect of for distinguishing between the living things that may be eaten, it more literally says that there may be a separation between the clean and the unclean. Now, as we're becoming more familiar with the concepts of Torah and of Leviticus, we can see the important difference between the words distinguish between and separate. In a world that demands political correctness and a tolerance for all things, distinguishing is a much milder concept than separating. 
Okay. Or distinguishing can even be seen as the preliminary step before one divides and separates. Yet in the original Hebrew Bible, it is quite emphatic that just knowing the difference between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the common, which is the idea of the word distinguish, is worlds apart from acting on that knowledge, which is the idea of separating. Okay? We're not just to know, to distinguish good from evil or right from wrong. We're to actively separate the two. Okay? We're to stand firmly on the side of right and good and away from wrong and evil. And that is a lot harder to do and takes a lot more commitment than just distinguishing. Okay? But that's exactly what's expected of us who are near God. Believers. Okay? Now, I'd like to begin to put together some puzzle pieces for you tonight. Pieces that hopefully will explain a lot of questions you might have concerning the relationships between sin and uncleanness, holiness and cleanness. Okay. Now keep that word relationships in your mind during this lesson because it's going to be the key to your grasping in a whole new way the method God speaks to us through the Bible. But to get to where we need to go tonight, I need to preface it all with a discussion of language and styles of thinking. Because these are real barriers for us to cross so that we can get to that truth. Now, one of the more contentious debates that surrounds the Bible concerns language. That is, the current widely held belief is that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew while the New was first penned in Greek. And there are scholars who are certain that parts of the New Testament were likely originally written in Hebrew or its cousin language Aramaic, but almost immediately were translated into Greek and widely distributed in that language. We're not going to delve into that kind of an argument tonight. Rather, we're just going to move forward with the assumption that Hebrew was the Old Testament language, Greek the New, because the old manuscripts found for each testament thus far are indeed Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New. But that doesn't change another important assumption, and this one is a biggie, that the Hebrews wrote the Bible. New Testament and Old the possible exception was Luke, yet even that's debatable. Okay. But be that as it may, even if Luke was not a Hebrew, he represents but one small piece of the biblical record. And in fact, what Luke did was to paste together written and personal accounts from Hebrews that had information on the subject. Right? that all other Bible writers, other than Luke, were Hebrews, has come up against no serious challenge whatsoever. Now, that said, it makes the Bible a thoroughly Hebrew document. Now, does the specific culture of the Hebrew biblical writers actually even matter? You bet it does. Okay? It is a given in sociology, anthropology, linguistics, and just simple observation that language is the reflection of its culture. Okay? And that any culture is embedded in its language. Okay? When at the Tower of Babel, Yehovah divided and separated that one common language of the world into many the result was far more reaching than simply a whole bunch of people who suddenly had almost no way to communicate, communicate among themselves. People who could still communicate among themselves, likely extended families and tribes, stuck to one another. And they formed groups out of necessity. 
And then the groups went their separate ways, achieving the Lord's desired purpose of dispersing and populating the whole globe. Inevitably, though, each of those language groups, now effectively divided from one another, separated and isolated by language from other groups, developed their own unique concepts and ideas of life and death, morals and ethics, law and justice, priorities and values, so on and so forth. They developed into their own separate people groups, nations and cultures, everyone with their own language and customs and values. So the language so the language and the culture are indelibly linked. Now, every unique culture has developed its own set of philosophies and concepts that it operates on. And many of these are actually completely unique to that particular culture and no other. More, the native language of that culture developed words found only within their language which embodied some of their one-of-a-kind cultural concepts. Therefore, some cultures have ideas and concepts that just don't have a parallel. Right, in any other culture or language. The point is that language and the culture it represents have concepts that are often very difficult to communicate to anyone, anyone outside that culture. Because A, there are no words that have been invented within those outside cultures to express that particular concept. And B, that it is because it is possible that certain concepts exist only within that one culture in the first place. So naturally there would be no words for it anywhere else. My wife has a, a lifelong friend that she just came back from visiting out west. She's a Mexican believer. And she explains that there are a number of words in the Mexican language, uh, Mexican Spanish dialect for the word love. And each of these words expresses a slightly different aspect of love. The problem is that most of these Mexican Spanish words have no direct English equivalent. Because those particular aspects of love are unique to the Mexican culture and foreign to Americans. They exist only in the Mexican culture. So it is difficult, if not impossible, to communicate those thoughts to someone outside the Mexican culture. This is the crux of the problem that we have when trying to understand the Bible. When trying to comprehend what those words meant to the ancient Hebrew people who wrote them, rather than simply what they say when translated into a different language and applied to a different culture. Complex, isn't it? But there's more. Hebrew culture in the Bible times also revolved around a certain way of thinking. A way that was quite common for that era. The way information was mentally processed was naturally reflected in their language, Hebrew. Now, of all people, I will tell you, it's been a most difficult challenge for me personally to even comprehend the idea that there exists more than one way of thinking, my way. If you don't believe that, just ask my wife. Did I get an amen out there? Something like that? Yeah. But what I mean by way of thinking is, is not about how humans put different emphasis on various matters or disagree on what's important or what has priority or whatever. I'm talking about a style of thinking. How conclusions are arrived at. Today, the vast majority of the world, certainly the Western world, uses in general a style of thinking that does not appear to have existed prior to the time of the Greeks popularizing it around 450 B.C. 
Okay? And it is this Greek style of processing information and then forming conclusions that the bulk of the developed world uses today. And it's very different from the way things were before that time. Every person in this room, all the translators of the Bible going back to its very first translation, by the way, from Hebrew, which was around 250 B.C., and it was from Hebrew to Greek, thinks in what scholars term the rational, logical style. Whether you realize it or not, that's the style of thinking you think in. But the biblical Hebrews, from before Moses up to and including those at the time of Jesus and the apostles, didn't think that way. Although by the time of Jesus, some of that thought style did begin to seep into the Jews of the diaspora. They did not think in this rational, logical style of the Greeks. Rather, they operated in a style of thought that scholars call analogic. Okay. Now, what that means for us is that often what the Hebrew writers of the Bible meant is totally obscured by the difficulty of attempting to translate analogic Hebrew thought into modern-day Western thought style like and using um, rational, logical-based languages like Greek, Latin, and English. Now, I'm going to explain the significant difference between analogic thought of the writers of the Bible and rational logical thought of the Bible interpreters and of each of us. So I'd like to ask you to kind of take a deep breath, shake the cobwebs, right, and pay close attention. After all, what could be more important than recovering the way the writers of the Bible thought so that we can understand what they meant by what they said? Now first, let's define rational, logical thought. This is the style of thinking that we all use unconsciously because we've grown up with it. It's unlikely any of us have ever even been exposed to an alternative style of thinking. It probably, we wouldn't even have recognized it had we seen it. Okay. Everything in our modern Western culture and in most world's cultures reflects rational, logical thought and has for 2,000 years. I say most cultures because Chinese and other Oriental peoples still incorporate analogical thought to a great degree in their culture. Okay. A well-known saying often aimed at the Chinese is that they are inscrutable. And that is usually mouthed by some poor international businessman or a diplomat out of absolute frustration and trying to understand and communicate with these Orientals. I mean, that is, we simply cannot seem to understand how these strange people think. They're, they're just an, it's a mystery to us. Right? The point is that rational, logical thought is by no means universal. Okay? Nor is rational, logical thought better, or is it something that's more advanced than analogical thought? It's simply different. Okay? Practically the opposite, really. And it's not something whereby you and I made some conscious decision to choose one style or the other to think in. Okay? The rational, logical style of thought is present in all we're surrounded with. Right? And, and, and how we're taught in our culture. That kind of thought is also embedded in science. Okay? The so-called scientific method that we were taught in grade school necessarily use, utilizes rational, logical thought. The two cannot be separated. Rational, logical thought relies on reasoning. And it operates on a philosophy of cause and effect. If I do this, the result is that. Okay? It's systemized thought. 
That is, it operates on the principle that everything that exists is part of a larger system. And every system is structured such that we can break it apart into smaller and smaller subsystems. And we can examine these subsystems separately and we can see how they work. For instance, in the language of science, a car is a system. It's composed of many subsystems like a motor and a transmission and a body and brakes and electrical wiring and seating and heating and air conditioning and so on. An engine, all by itself, can be developed and examined completely outside the car. And in fact, that same engine and the principles that guide its development can be used in, in a whole slew of applications and systems such as boats and trucks and airplanes and electricity generators. Alone, each of these many subsystems, each of them is complete and whole. They're self-contained. They perform a function. But when we then connect several of these subsystems together, presto, we have an automobile. Here's another example. In Western medicine, Western medicine operates generally in a way that does not see a soul as a separate part and subsystem of a human being. Rather, a soul is seen as just part of our brain function. A soul is a belief. Rationally, logically, it's really nothing more than the result of how our brain operates. Rationally, logically, there is no identifiable part of a human called a soul. Something that can be removed, examined, and repaired. I won't even get into the concept of a spirit, because that has almost no meaning at all in Western medicine. Now, rational, logical thought is generally broken down into two main types of reasoning processes. Something they call inductive and deductive. Probably bringing back a lot of college stuff, high school stuff you guys write about now. Deductive reasoning operates on combining a series of hard, cold facts in order to come to a conclusion. Fact number one, all dogs have four legs. Fact number two, Rover's a dog. Conclusion, Rover has four legs. That's deductive reasoning. Simple enough. But inductive reasoning does not seek to achieve a mathematical certainty as deductive reasoning does. Inductive reasoning occurs when we gather bits and pieces of information together and then we combine them with our life experiences and our knowledge in order to make an observation of what seems to be true. Here's an example of inductive reasoning. Observation one. John came to class late this morning. Observation number two. John's hair was messy. Experience. John's hair is usually neat and combed. Conclusion. John must have overslept. See the difference? When we observe people and deal with people, we tend to use inductive reasoning in making our conclusions. Yet, whether inductive or deductive, it's all part of rational, logical style of thinking. Now, rational, logical thinking is linear. It's a straight line, and it's evolutionary. A leads to B. B leads to C. C leads to D. Rational, logical thinking always asks why rational logical thought says that history is a straight line that starts with some unidentified point in the past and it goes on until infinity that history is certainly therefore non-repeating and the past is not a predictor of the future Patterns do not exist from a historical standpoint. The thing about rational logical thinking is that it operates best in a vacuum. 
Okay, away from relationships, away from connections to other things that might be similar or that happened previously. Truth and relevance are pragmatic. That is, in the rational, logical thinking style, the question of why did something happen is defined by how it happened and exactly what happened. It's a very narrow search for relevant information because it pertains to a specific event that happened at a specific time and nothing else. The past and the future have no relevance or connection to one another. Now, what I just described to you is what the Bible would call Greek thinking. Okay? It's the style of thinking of those Hellenists political group at the time of the Jews who were at odds with the Jews. And in a few minutes, I'm going to think, I think you're going to see why that style of thinking simply does not know what to do with the Hebrew style of thought and a logic thought. Now, before I try to explain analogic thought, the type of thought that the writers of the Bible used, let me state right up front, there is nothing wrong there is nothing ungodly, nothing faulty about rational, logical thinking. Okay? Provided we acknowledge that it's not the only style. Okay? And that it does have its built-in limitations too. Okay? For instance, the universe is created by Jehovah doesn't necessarily operate in a rational, logical way, try as scholars and scientists might try at times to pound square pegs into round holes to make it seem that way. Okay. Rational, logical thinking is necessarily man-centered. It is totally dependent on factoring in the four dimensions that are observable in our universe. Length, width, height, and time. Okay. The credo of rational logical thinking is that only things that can be scientifically observed and tested and are repeatable are real. It relies on the power of the human mind to discover and then to use those discoveries to make decisions and judgments. What cannot be proved by logic and reason is automatically invalid. Okay. Now, analogic thinking is an entirely different animal. It operates based on patterns and models. Okay. Analogic thinking searches for and it recognizes, com recognizes common foundational truths that are shared between similar things, even though those particular similar things may not be completely alike. For instance, the operation of the wings of an airplane, to a degree, are like the operation of the wings of a bird or a flying insect. Certainly, beyond the ability to fly, and having some structures that stick out called wings, there aren't very many similarities between birds and jets. Okay? Yet the same principles of aerodynamics are at work in both flying creatures and in airplanes. Analogic thinking relies on relationships and then connections. For instance, think about what we've been reading in the Torah in general, Leviticus in particular, how it doesn't attempt, there is no attempt, to explain the reason for each new law or instruction. Rather, Another, but a similar law or instruction is just added to the mix. And then another. And then yet more. The relationship between all these laws and instructions then creates this overall picture that establishes the meaning. So, if you're like me, and we ask ourselves when studying Leviticus, so why? Can't we eat pork? In reality, the answer simply is because it conforms to the underlying principle behind all the other laws. 
That's the reason. That is that the new rule is what it is for the purpose of staying in perfect relationship to all the other rules. The original Genesis pattern therefore becomes the context in which everything else that comes later has to conform. That's how patterns and models work. Yeshua spoke often in a particular kind of analogic thought style called parables. Embodied deep within his sometimes very puzzling parables were these spiritual principles and patterns that, that, that exist and they never change. Okay? But he got his point across by applying principles of established and understood patterns to other things that didn't on the surface even seem similar. In fact, sometimes the dissimilarities were so big that people had and still have a hard time understanding the meaning of those analogies that he drew. Why? Because they didn't recognize the pattern that connected it all. What does a mustard seed have to do with the kingdom of heaven? Why would anybody throw valuable pearls to farm animals? Especially pigs. What does running out of oil to keep an oil lamp burning have to do with the return of Messiah? The answer is in the long-established spiritual patterns and principles. Now, the thing about analogic thinking is that it must have a pre-existent original pattern, a Genesis pattern. Okay, from which to progress and then model itself after. So the important issue in analogic thinking of the Bible characters is this. Which pattern is true and relevant for this current situation? Okay, therefore, in the Greek style of thinking, the search is always for why. Why? But in the Hebrew style... The search is always for which. Which pattern fits a particular regulation or circumstance? And when they find that, when we find that, then the meaning becomes clear. Analogic thinking tends to see things as microcosm. A microcosm simply means it's a little world all into itself. Okay? It's a little miniature universe that's a model of the bigger and more elaborate one. Okay? A family, for instance, is a microcosm of a community. That is, a family is just a miniature-sized grouping of people that is similar in principle and structure to a larger grouping of people called a community. Now that we understand the basics of the problem, let's get to the practical terms of what this means to us and to the study of Torah. We know that Hebrew is a language now that embodies a culture of analogic thinking. On the other hand, Greek is a language embodying a culture of rational, logical thinking. Hebrew is a complete completely separate culture with a completely unique language that was designed to communicate the Hebrews' unique concepts and thoughts. And the Hebrew concepts that we see in the Bible are based on the mind of God and the information he gave to them and them alone in the form of the Torah and then the later scriptures. Greek is the widespread and variant culture with a unique language that was designed to communicate its particular cultural concepts and philosophies. Greek culture is based on human discovery, human philosophy, science, technology, man-made systems of morality and truth-finding. How does a Greek system of thought and problem-solving 
extract truth and meaning from an entirely opposite system of thinking. How do Hebrew concepts that existed only in the minds of Hebrews, born of a Hebrew culture, expressed by the Hebrew language, get communicated to the minds of men like us who dwell in a Greek culture which doesn't even have these same concepts, nor do we have a vocabulary in our own tongue to describe and communicate them. Answer? Not very well. Now, we'll finish up here. Is Hebrew somehow good and Greek somehow bad? No. Is Hebrew godly and Greeks ungodly? No. Not at all. God created all language. In fact, he absolutely forced language variation on the human race, the Tower of Babel. And as Dr. Robert McGee once pointed out to me, God knew and has had good reason to allow the New Testament to hit the streets running in the Greek language. As imperfect as it might be to properly illuminate Hebrew thoughts. So our task now in Torah class and my passion is to figure out just how to look at the Bible through these hopelessly rational logical eyes of ours and extract a meaning that was formulated in analogic thought and language and culture. I have no doubt it can be done to a great degree, but I'm going to tell you, it takes a great willingness on your part to let go of some doctrines and traditions that were created by rational, logical thinking men, many of which despised the Hebrews and Israel. Men who could not bear the thought of bending and trying to approach the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament from the different mindset of those who actually wrote it. This would have involved actually validating the Jewish culture and Jewish thought style, something that by the middle to the late 2nd century was absolutely unthinkable for the now Gentile-controlled church that wanted no form of Jewishness to to remain and certainly not to be a part of something called Christianity. We're going to conclude this next week and then move on into Leviticus chapter 12.